Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Pedro Domingos, a computer science professor at the University of Washington and the author of The Master Algorithm, How the Quest for the Ultimate Learning Machine Will Remake Our World. Welcome to the show, Pedro. Thanks for having me. What is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is getting computers to do things that traditionally require human intelligence, like reasoning, problem solving, common sense knowledge, learning, uh, vision, speech and language understanding, planning, decision making, and so on. And is it artificial in the sense that artificial turf is artificial in that it isn't really intelligence, it just looks like intelligence? Or is it actually truly intelligent and it's just the artificial demarks that we created it? Uh, That's a fun analogy. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, No, I don't think uh, AI is like artificial turf. I think it's real intelligence. It's just intelligence of a different kind. We're used to thinking of human intelligence or maybe animal intelligence as the only intelligence on the planet. What happens now is there's a different kind of intelligence. Uh, It's a little bit like, you know, does a submarine really swim or is it faking that it swims? Actually, it doesn't really swim, but it can still travel underwater using very different ideas, or, you know, does a plane fly, even though it doesn't flap its wings? Well, it doesn't flap its wings, but it, but it does fly, and AI is a little bit like that. In, in some ways, actually, artificial intelligence uh, is intelligent in ways that human intelligence isn't, right? There are many areas where AI already exceeds human intelligence, so I would say that they're just different forms of intelligence, but uh, it is very much a form of intelligence. And how would you describe the state of the art right now? Uh, the state of, so right, uh, you know, in, in, in science and technology, progress often happens in spurts. There are long periods of slow progress, and then there are periods of very sudden, very rapid progress. And we are definitely in one of those periods of, of very rapid progress in AI, uh, which was a long time in the making. AI is a field that's, that's 50 years old, and it had, you know, what was called the AI spring in the 80s, where it looked like it was going to really take off. Uh, but then that didn't really happen at the end of the day. And, and the problem was that people back then were trying to do AI uh, using what's called knowledge engineering. If I wanted an AI system to do medical diagnosis, I had to interview doctors and program you know, the doctor's knowledge of diagnosis in the form of rules into the computer. And that didn't scale. The thing that has changed recently um, is that we have a new way to do AI, which is machine learning. Instead of trying to program the computers to do things, the computers program themselves by learning from data. So now what I do for medical diagnosis is I give the computer a database of patient records, what their symptoms and test results were, and what the diagnosis was. And from just that, in you know, 30 seconds, the computer can learn typically to do medical diagnosis better than human doctors. So thanks to that, thanks to machine learning, we are now seeing a phase of very rapid progress also because, you know, the learning algorithms have gotten better. And very importantly, the, the beauty of machine learning is that because the intelligence comes from the data, as the data grows exponentially, 
the, the AI systems get more intelligence with, more intelligent with, with essentially no extra work from us. So now AI is becoming very powerful just on the back of the wave of data that we have. The other element of this, of course, is computing power, right? We need, we need enough computing power to turn all that data into intelligent systems, but we do have those. So the combination of learning algorithms and a lot of data and, and a lot of computing power is, is what's making the current progress happen. And how long do you think we can ride that wave? Do you think that machine learning is the path to an AGI, hypothetically? I mean, do we have 10, 20, 30, 40 more years of, of running with kind of the machine learning ball, or, or do we need another kind of breakthrough? Uh, yeah, I think, right, I think machine learning is definitely the path to you know, artificial general intelligence. And I think pretty much, I think there are a few people in AI who would disagree with that. You know, your computer can be as intelligent as you want. If it can't learn, uh, you know, 30 minutes later, it will already be falling behind, you know, humans. So machine learning really is uh, essential to getting to intelligence. In fact, the whole idea of the singularity, you know, was I.J. Good back in the 50s who had this idea of a learning machine that could make a machine that learned better than it did, as a result of which you would have this succession of, of better and better, uh, you know, more and more intelligent machines you know, until they left uh, humans in the dust. Now, how long will it take? That's very hard to predict precisely because progress is not linear. I think the current boom of progress at some point will probably plateau. Uh, I don't think we are on the verge of having uh, a general uh, AI. Uh, we've come a thousand miles, but there's a million miles more to go. Uh, we're going to need many more breakthroughs. Uh, who knows where those breakthroughs will, will, will come from. Uh, you know, in the most optimistic view, maybe this will all happen in the next, you know, decade or two, uh, because things will just happen one after another, and we'll have it very soon. Uh, in the more pessimistic view, it's just too hard and it'll never happen. Uh, if you pull AI experts, you know, on average, they say it's going to be maybe, you know, several decades. But the truth is nobody really knows for sure. Right. And what what is kind of interesting is not that people don't know and not that they're forecast are kind of all over the map, but, but that knowledgeable people, if you, if you look at the extreme estimates, the five years are the most aggressive, and then the furthest out are like 500. And what, is that, what does that suggest to you that, you know, it is, if, if, if I went to my cleaners, I said, hey, when is my shirt going to be ready? And they said sometime between five and 500 days, I would be like, okay, you know, something, <laughs> something's going on here. Like, why do you think the opinions are so variant on when we get an AGI. Well, the cleaners, right, you know, when they clean your shirt, it's a very well-known, very repeatable process. They know how long it takes and it's going to take the same thing this time, right? There are very few unknowns. The problem in AI is that we don't even know what we don't know. We have no idea what we're missing. So some people think we're not missing that much. Those are the optimists that say, oh, we just need more data, right? Back in the 80s, they said, oh, we just need more knowledge. And then that wasn't the case. So that's the optimistic view. The, pessim the more pessimistic view is that this is a really, really hard problem and we've only scratched the surface. So the uncertainty comes from the fact that we don't even know what we don't know. We, we certainly don't know how the brain works, right? We have, the, we, have, we have vague ideas of kind of like what different parts of it do, but in terms of how a thought is encoded, we don't know. Do, do you think we need to know more about our own intelligence to make an AGI? Or is it like, no, that's apples and oranges. It doesn't really matter how the brain works. We're, we're building an AGI differently. 
Not necessarily. So there are definitely very different schools of thought in AI. And this is, you know, part of what I talk about in my book. There is one thought, one, one school of thought in AI, the connectionists, whose whole agenda is to reverse engineer the brain. They think that's the shortest path to, you know, here's the competition, uh, go reverse engineer it, figure out how it works, build it on a computer, and then we'll have uh, intelligence. So that is definitely a plausible approach. I think it's actually a very difficult approach, just precisely because we understand so little about how the brain works, right? We, it, in some ways, maybe it's trying to solve a problem by way of solving a harder sub-problem. And then there's other you know, AI types, namely the symbolists, whose whole idea is, no, we don't need to understand things at that low level. In fact, you're just going to get lost in the weeds if you try to do that. We have to understand intelligence at a high level of abstraction, and, and, and we'll get there much sooner that way. So forget how the brain works. That's really not important. Again, the analogy you know, with birds and airplanes is, 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 is a good one. Uh, you know, what the symbolist says, like, if we try to make airplanes by building machines that will flap their wings, we'll never have them. Right? What we need to do is understand the laws of physics and, and aerodynamics and then build machines based on that. So, you know, there's different schools of thought. And I actually think it's good that there be different schools of thought and, and we'll see who gets there first. So you, you mentioned your book, The Master Algorithm, um, which is, of course, required reading in, uh, in this field. Can you give the, the listener who may not be as familiar with it an overview of what is the master algorithm and what are, what, what are we looking for? Yeah, sure. So the book is essentially an introduction to machine learning for a general audience. So not, you know, just technical people, but, you know, business people, policymakers, just citizens and, and people who are curious. It talks about, you know, the impact that machine learning is already having in the world. You know, a lot of people think that these things are science fiction, but, but they're already in their lives. They just don't know it. It also looks at the future, uh, you know, what we can expect coming down the line. But mainly, it is an introduction to what I was just describing. There are five main schools of thought uh, in machine learning. Uh, there's the people who want to reverse engineer the brain, the ones who want to simulate evolution, the ones who, you know, do machine learning by uh, automating the scientific method, uh, the ones who use Bayesian statistics, and the ones who do reasoning by analogy that people like people do uh, in everyday life. And then I look at, you know, the different, you know, what these different methods can and can't do. The name, the master algorithm, comes from this notion that a machine learning algorithm is a master algorithm in the same sense that a master key opens all doors. A learning algorithm can do all sorts of different things while being the same algorithm. This is really what's extraordinary about machine learning is that in traditional computer science, if I want a computer to play chess, I have to write a program to, you know, explaining how to play chess. And if I wanted to drive a car, I have to write a program explaining how to drive a car. With machine learning, the same learning algorithm can learn to play chess or drive a car or do you know, a million different other things just by learning from the appropriate data. And each of these you know, tribes of machine learning has its own master algorithm. The more optimistic of the members of that tribe believe that you can do everything with that master algorithm, my contention in the book is that each of these algorithms is only solving part of the problem. What we need to do is unify them all into a grand theory of, of, of machine learning in the same way that physics has the standard model and biology has a central dogma. And, and, and then that will be the true master algorithm. And I suggest some paths towards that algorithm, and I think we're actually getting pretty close to it. One thing I found empowering in the book, and, and you stated over and over at the beginning, which is the master algorithm may actually, it, it, it is uh, aspirationally 
accessible for a wide range of people. Like uh, you basically said, you listening to the book, you know, this is still a field where the, the, the layman in, in a way can, can still have some amount of, a, of a breakthroughs. Can you speak to that for just a minute? Absolutely. So in fact, this part of what got me into machine learning is that unlike physics or mathematics or biology that are very mature fields and you really can only contribute once you have at least a PhD, computer science and AI and machine learning are still very young. So, you know, you could be a kid in a garage and actually have a great idea that will be transformative. And I hope that that will happen. I think even after we find this master algorithm, that's the unification of the five current ones, as we were talking about, we will still be missing some really important, really deep ideas. And I think in some ways, someone coming from outside the field is more likely to find those than those of us who are professional machine learning researchers and are already thinking along these tracks of these particular schools of thought. So part of my goal in writing the book was to get people who are not machine learning experts uh, thinking about machine learning and maybe having you know, the, the next great ideas that will get us closer to AGI. And you also point out in the book that, because um, you, you spend a fair amount of time asking, you know, how do we even know that such a, such a thing is possible? And one of your proof points is our intelligence. Exactly. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, so this is, of course, is one of those very ambitious goals that people, you know, should be at the outset a little suspicious of, right? Is this like the Philosopher's Stone or the Perpetual Motion Machine? Is it really possible, right? And again, some people do, do, don't think it's possible. I think there's a number of reasons why I'm, I'm pretty sure it is possible. One of which is that we already have existence proofs. One existence proof is our brains, right? As long as you believe in reductionism, which all scientists do, uh, your brain, you know, the way your brain works can be expressed as an algorithm. And if I implement that algorithm on a computer, then that algorithm can learn everything that your brain can. Therefore, in that sense, at least one version of the master algorithm already exists. Another one is evolution, right? Evolution created us and, you know, all life on Earth. And it is essentially an algorithm. Uh, and, and we roughly understand how that algorithm works. So there is another uh, existing instance of the master algorithm. Then there's also, besides these more empirical reasons, there are also theoretical reasons uh, that tell us that a master algorithm exists. One of which is that for each of the five tribes, for their master algorithm, there's a theorem that says, if you give enough data to this algorithm, it can learn any function. So at least at that level, we already know that master algorithms exist. Now the question is, you know, how complicated will it be? How hard will it, you know, be to get us there? Uh, you know, and, and you know, how, how broadly good would that algorithm be, you know, in terms of learning from a reasonable amount of data in a reasonable amount of time? You, you just said all scientists are reductionists. Is that necessarily the case? Like, can you not be a scientist and believe in something like strong emergence and, and just basically say, actually, you can't necessarily take the human mind down to individual atoms and kind of reconstruct. I mean, you don't have to appeal to mysticism to... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I mean, this is a very good point. In fact, in the sense that you're talking about, we cannot be reductionists in AI. So what I mean by reductionist is just the, the, the idea that we can decompose a complex system into simpler, smaller parts that interact and that make up the system, right? This is how all of science and engineering works. But very much, this does not preclude the existence of emergent properties, right? So the system can be more than the sum of its parts uh, if it's nonlinear. 
And very much the brain is a nonlinear system, and that's what we have to do to, to reach AI. You could even say that machine learning is, is the science of emergent properties. In fact, you know, one of the names by which it has been known uh, in some quarters is self-organizing systems. And in, in fact, what makes AI hard, the reason we haven't already solved it, is that the usual divide and conquer strategy that scientists and engineers follow of dividing problems into small and small subproblems and then solving the subproblems and putting the solutions together, that tends not to work in AI because the subsystems are very strongly coupled together. So this is a harder problem and there are emergent properties, but that does not mean that, you know, at the end of the day, you can't reduce it to these pieces. It's just a harder thing to do. Marvin Minsky, I remember, talked about how, you know, we, we kind of got tricked a little bit by, you have Newton, you know, three laws. And, you know, in electricity, you have a very, that most things in physics, it seems, there are very few simple laws to kind of explain everything that happens. And so the hope had been that intelligence would be like that. Are we, are we giving up on that notion? Um, uh, yes. So, um, again, there are different views within AI on this. Uh, I think at, at one end, there's people who hope that we will discover, you know, a few laws of, of AI and those will solve everything. At the other end of the spectrum, there's people like, like Marvin and Minsky who just thinks that intelligence is a big, big, big pile of hats, right? Even has a book that's like one of these tricks per page. Uh, and, you know, and, and who knows how many more there are. I think, and, and, and most people in AI believe that it's somewhere in between, right? If AI is just a big pile of hacks, we're never gonna get there. And also, you know, it, it can't really just be a pile of hacks because if, if the hacks were so powerful as to create intelligence, then you can't really call them hacks. On the other hand, you know, you can't reduce it to, you know, to a few laws like Newton's laws. So, you know, this idea of the master algorithm is, at the end of the day, we will find one algorithm that does intelligence, but that algorithm, you know, is not going to be a hundred lines of code. It's not going to be millions of lines of code either. You know, if the algorithm is, is thousands or tens of thousands of lines of code, that will be great. It'll still be a more complex theory, than, much more complex than the ones that we have in physics, but it'll be much, much simpler than, than what people like, like Marvin Minsky envisaged. And if we find the master algorithm, is that, is that good for humanity? Uh, well, I think it's good or bad, depending on what we do with it. Um, like all technology, machine learning just gives us, you know, more power, right? You can think of it as a superpower, right? You know, telephones let us speak at a distance, airplanes let us fly, and machine learning lets us predict things and, and lets, you know, uh, technology adapt automatically to our needs. All of this is good if we use it for good. Anyway, but if we use it for bad, it'll be bad, right? The technology itself doesn't know how it's going to be used. And again, part of my reason for writing this book is that everybody needs to be aware of what machine learning is and what it can do so that they can control it, right? Because otherwise, the, you know, machine learning will just give more control to those few who actually know how to use it. I think, you know, if you look at the history of technology, over time, in the end, the good tends to prevail over the bad, which is why we live in a better world today than we did 200 years or, or you know, or 2,000 years ago. But we have to make it happen, right? It just doesn't, you know, fall from the tree like that. And so, in, in, in your view, the master algorithm is essentially synonymous with AGI in the sense that it can figure anything out. It's a general artificial intelligence. Would it be... But, but that's a completely different thing than would it be conscious, correct? Yeah, so by the way, I, I wouldn't say that the, the mass algorithm is synonymous with AGI. 
I think it's the enabler of AGI, right? Once we have the master algorithm, we're still going to need to apply to you know, vision and language and reasoning and all these things, and then we'll have AGI. So one way to think about this is that it's an 80-20 rule. The master algorithm is the 20% of the work that gets you 80% of the way, but you still need to do the rest, right? So, so maybe this is a better way to, uh, to think about it. Fair enough. So do you, th so I'll, I'll just ask the question a little more directly. Do you believe, what do you think consciousness is? Uh, that is a very uh, good question. And the truth is, um, what makes consciousness simultaneously so fascinating and so hard, right, is that at the end of the day, if there's one thing that I know is that I'm conscious, right? Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. But maybe he should have said, I'm conscious, therefore I am. So, you know, the laws of physics, who knows, they might even be wrong. But the fact that I'm consciousness right now, that is absolutely, you know, unquestionable. So everybody knows that about themselves. At the same time, because consciousness is a subjective experience, it doesn't lend itself to the, to the scientific method, right? What are reproducible experiments when it comes to consciousness? You know, that's one aspect. The other one is that consciousness is a very complex emergent phenomenon. So nobody really knows what it is or understands it, even at a fairly shallow level. Now, the reason uh, we believe, you know, others have consciousness, right? You believe that I have consciousness because you're a human being, I'm a human being, so since you have consciousness, I probably have consciousness as well. And this, this is really the extent of it. You don't know, you know, for all you know, I could be a robot, right? Talking to you right now, right? And, and passing the Turing test and not be conscious at all. Now, what happens with machines, right? How can we tell whether a machine is conscious or not? This has been, you know, grist for the mill of, of a lot of philosophers over the last few decades. I think the bottom line is that once a computer starts to act like it's consciousness, we will treat it as if it's consciousness. We will grant it consciousness. In fact, we already do that, even with very simple, you know, chatbots and whatnot. So as far as everyday life knows, it actually won't be long. In some ways, it, it'll happen sooner that people treat computers as being conscious than the computers being truly intelligent. Uh, because that's, that's all we need, right? We project these human properties onto things that act humanly, even in the slightest way. Now, at the end of the day, if you gaze down into that hardware and those circuits, is there really consciousness there? Um, I don't know if we will ever be able to answer that question. Uh, right now, I actually don't see a good way. I think there will come a point at which we understand consciousness well enough because we understand the brain well enough that we are fairly confident that we can tell whether something is conscious or not. And then at that point, I think we will apply this criteria to these machines. And, and these machines, at least the ones that have been designed to be conscious, will pass that test. So, so we will believe that machines have consciousness, but you know, we, we can never be totally sure. And do you believe consciousness is required for a, gen a general intellect? intellect? Uh, I think there are many kinds of AI and many AI applications that do not require consciousness. So for example, if I tell a machine learning system to go solve cancer, like that's one of the things we'd like to do is cure cancer and machine learning these days is a very big part of, of, the, uh, you know, of the battle to cure cancer. I don't think that requires uh, you know, consciousness at all. It, it requires a lot of you know, searching and, and understanding you know, molecular biology and trying different drugs, maybe designing drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, you know, 90% of AI will involve no, uh, no consciousness at all. There are some applications of AI and some types of AI that, that will require consciousness or something indistinguishable from it. Like for example, uh, you know, housebots, right? We would like to have a robot that, you know, cooks dinner and does the dishes and makes the beds and whatnot. 
in order to do all those things, you know, the, the robot has to have all the capabilities of a human, you know, has to integrate all these senses, vision and, 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 and touch and proprioception and, and hearing and whatnot, and then make decisions based on that. I think this is either going to be, you know, consciousness or, or indistinguishable from it. Do you think there'll be problems that arise if, if that happens? Let's say you, you build Rosie the robot and you don't know, like you said, deep down inside if uh, the robot is conscious or is merely acting as if it is. Do you think at that point we, we have to have this question of are we fine enslaving what could be a conscious machine to, you know, plunge our toilet for us? Well, that depends on what you consider enslaving, right? So one way to look at this, and it's the way I look at it, is that these are still just machines, right? Just because they're consciousness doesn't mean that they have human rights. You know, human rights are for humans. I don't think there's any such thing as robot rights. And, but the deeper question here is, what gives something rights, right? You know, you know, one school of thought is that it's the ability to suffer that gives you rights, and therefore animals should have rights. And, you know, and, and, and but... If you think about it historically, the idea of having animal rights even 50 years ago would have seemed absurd. So by the same standard, maybe 50 years from now, people will want to have robot rights. In fact, there are some people already talking about it. I think it's really, it's a very strange idea, right? And often people talk about like, oh, will the machines be our friends or will they be our slaves? Uh, you know, will they be our equals? Will they be inferior? Actually, I think this whole way of framing things is mistaken you know, the robots will be neither our equals nor our slaves. They'll be our extensions, right? Robots are a technology, you know, they, they, they augment us. I think it's not so much that the machines will be conscious or not, but that through machines we will have a bigger consciousness. In the same way that, for example, the internet already gives us a bigger consciousness than we had when, the, the, when, when, when there was no internet. So... Uh, robots leads us to a talk, what, something that's in the news literally every day is the, the prospect that automation and technological advance will eliminate jobs faster than it can create new ones, or it will eliminate jobs and replace them with um, inaccessible kinds of jobs. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think the future holds? I think we have to distinguish between the near term, near term by which I mean, you know, the next 10 years or so, and the long term. Uh, in, in the near term, I think some jobs will disappear, just like jobs have disappeared to automation in the past, right? AI is really automation on steroids. So I think what's going to happen in the near term is not so different from what has happened in the past. Some jobs will be automated, so some jobs will disappear, but many new jobs will appear as well. And it's always easier to see the jobs that disappear than the ones that appear. You, you know, think, for example, of... Um, uh, you know, being an app developer, right? There's millions of people today who make a living being app developers. 10 years ago, that job didn't exist. 50 years ago, you couldn't even imagine that job, right? 200 years ago, 90-something percent of Americans were farmers, right? And then farming got automated. And that, doesn't, that didn't mean that 98% of, you know, not today, only 2% of Americans work in agriculture. That doesn't mean that the other 98% are unemployed. They're just doing all of these jobs that people couldn't even imagine before. And I think a lot of that is what's going to happen here. We will see entire new job categories appear. We will also see, you know, on a more mundane level, more demand for lots of existing jobs. Uh, you know, and people also tend to forget that. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, I think truck drivers should be worried about the future of their jobs because, you know, self-driving trucks are coming. Uh, but then, you know, uh, 
and so they'll be unemployed. And there are many millions of truck drivers uh, in, in the U.S. alone. It's one of the most, you know, um, uh, widespread uh, occupations. But now what will they do? Right. Will the, you know, people say like, oh, you can't turn truck drivers into programmers. Well, you don't have to turn them into programmers because, you know, think about what's going to happen. You know, because, you know, trucks are self-driving, goods will cost less. Goods will cost less. People who have more money in their pocket. They will spend it on other things, like, for example, having a bigger, better house. And, and therefore, there will be more demand for construction workers and some of these truck drivers will become construction workers and so on. Uh, you know, having said all that, I, I think that in the near term, the most important thing that's going to happen to jobs is actually near the ones that will disappear, not the ones that will appear, is that most jobs will be transformed by AI. You know, the way I do my job will change because some parts will become automated, but now we'll be able to do other things better or more than I could do before when I didn't have the automation. So really the question that everybody needs to think about is like, what parts of my job can I automate? Really the best way to protect, you know, your job from automation is to automate it yourself. And then what can I do using these machine learning tools? Automation is like, is like having a horse, right? You don't try to outrun a horse, you ride the horse. And, and we have to ride automation, you know, to doing, you know, better, you know, our jobs better and, 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 and in more ways than, than we can now. So it doesn't sound like you're all that pessimistic about the future of employment. I'm, I'm optimistic, but I also worry. I think that's a good combination, right? I think if we're pessimistic, we'll never do anything, right? Again, if you look at the history of technology, uh, the optimists at the end of the day are the ones who made the world a better place, not the pessimists. But at the same time, we need to, you know, naive optimism is very dangerous, right? We need to worry continuously about all the things that could go wrong and keep making sure that they don't go wrong. So I think the combination of optimism and worry is, is the right one to have. Do you think, uh, some people say we'll, we'll find a way to merge mentally with the AI. Is that even a valid like, question? And if so, what do you think of it? I think that's what's going to happen, right? In fact, it's already happening. We are going to merge with our machines step by step. Uh, you know, like a, a computer is a machine that is closer to us than a television. A, 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 a smartphone is closer to us than, you know, than a, than a desktop is, and, you know, and the laptop is somewhere in between. And we're already starting to see these things like Google Class and augmented reality, where in essence, the computer is really just, you know, extending our senses and extending our part to do things. And, you know, you know, Elon Musk has this company that's going to create, you know, an interface between neurons and, and computers. And in fact, in research labs, this already exists. We have colleagues, I have colleagues that work on that. They call brain computer interfaces. So step by step, right? You know, the way to think about this is we are cyborgs, right? Human beings actually are the cyborg species. From day one, we were, you know, of one with our technology, right? Even our physiology would be different if we couldn't do things like, you know, light fires and throw spears. So this has always been an ongoing process. You know, part of us is technology, uh, and, and, and that will become more and more so in the future. Uh, so, you know, also, you know, with things like the internet, we are connecting ourselves into, into a bigger, you know, um, you know, humanity itself is an emergent phenomenon, and having the internet and computers allows a greater level to emerge. And I think uh, exactly how this happened and when, of course, is, is up for grabs, but but that's the way things are going. So you mentioned in, in passing a minute ago the singularity. Do you, do you believe that that is what will happen as it's you know, commonly thought, that there is going to be this kind of point in the reasonably near future from which we cannot see anything 
beyond it because we don't have any frame of reference? Yeah, I don't believe that the singularity will happen in those terms. So this idea of, you know, exponentially increasing progress that goes on forever, uh, that's not going to happen because it's physically impossible, right? No exponential goes on forever. It always flattens out sooner or later. All exponentials are really what are called S-curves in disguise, right? They go up, you know, faster and faster. And this is how all previous technology waves have looked. But then they flatten out and finally they plateau. Also, this notion that at some point things will become completely incomprehensible for us, I don't believe it either because uh, there will, will always be parts that we understand, uh, number one, uh, and, there will always, and there are limits to what any intelligence can do, human or non-human. So there has been, you know, in, by that extent, in some ways, the singularity has already happened. Like 100 years ago, you know, the most advanced technology was maybe something like a car, right? And, and, and I could understand every part of how a car works completely. Today, we already have technology, you know, like the computer systems that we have today. Nobody understands that whole system. Different people understand different parts. And with machine learning in particular, right, the machine learning, the thing that's notable about machine learning is that they can do very complex things very well, and we have no idea how they're doing them. And yet, we are comfortable with that because we don't necessarily care about the details of how to accomplish it. We just care whether the medical diagnosis was correct or the patient's cancer was cured or the car is driving correctly. So, so I think, you know, this notion of, of the singularity is a little bit off. Having said that, we are in the middle of one of these escrows. We are seeing very rapid progress. And by the time this has run its course, the world will be a very, very different place from what it is today. How so? Uh, all these things that we've been talking about, we will have intelligent machines surrounding us, not just humanoid machines, but intelligence on tap, right? In the same way that today you can, you know, you can use electricity for whatever you want just by you know, plugging into the socket, uh, you will be able to plug into intelligence. And indeed, the leading tech companies are already trying to make this happen. So there will be all these things that the greater intelligence enables, right? Everybody will have a home robot in the same way that they have a car. Uh, we will have this larger, you know, this whole process that the internet is enabling and that the intelligence on top of the internet is enabling and, and the internet of things and so on, of having this, you know, emergent, you know, there would be sort of like this larger emergent, you know, being, if you will, uh, that's, that's not just individual human beings or even just societies. But, uh, you know, again, it's hard to picture exactly what, what that will be, but, but this, is, this is going to happen. You know, it always makes the news when an artificial intelligence masters some game, right? Like, we all, we all know the list. Uh, you, you had chess, and then you had Jeopardy, of course, and then you had AlphaGo, and then recently you had poker. And I get that games are kind of a natural place because I guess it's a, it's a, it's a confined universe with very rigid, specific rules, and then there's a lot of training data for, for teaching it how to function in that. Are there, are there scopes, are there, are there types of problems that machine learning actually isn't suited to solve, I mean, just kind of like philosophically, doesn't matter how good your algorithms are or how much data you have or how fast a computer is, it's, it's not the way to solve that particular problem. Well, certainly some problems are much harder than others. And as you say, you know, games are, are, are easier in the sense that they are these very constrained artificial universes. And that's why we can do so well in them. In fact, the summary of what machine learning and AI are good for today is that they are good for these tasks that are somewhat well-defined and constrained. What people are much better at is things that require, you know, knowledge of the world, they require common sense, 
They require, you know, integrating lots of different information. We're not there yet. We don't have the learning algorithms that can do that. So the learning algorithms that we have today are certainly good for some things, but not others. But again, you know, if we have the master algorithm, then we will be able to do all these things. And, and we are uh, making progress towards them. So, um, so we'll see. You know, anytime I see a chatbot or something that's entered to try to pass the Turing test, however rudimentary, I always type the same first question, which is, which is bigger, a nickel or the sign? And not a single one of them has, has ever answered it correctly. Well, exactly, I mean, because they don't have common sense knowledge, right? This is exactly one of those. There's, it's often, you know, it's amazing what computers can do in some ways, and it's amazing what they can't do in others, like these really simple pieces of common sense knowledge. In a way, one of the big lessons that we've learned in AI is that uh, automating the job of a doctor or a lawyer is actually easy. What is very hard to do with AI is what a three-year-old can do, right? If we could have, you know, a robot baby that can do what a, what a, what a one-year-old can do and learn the same way, uh, we would have solved AI. It's much, much harder to do those things, like things that we take for granted, like, like you know, picking up an object, for example, the, or like walking around without tripping. We take this for granted because evolution spent 500 million years developing it. It's extremely sophisticated, but you know, for us, it's below the conscious level. The things for us that we are conscious of and that we have to go to college for, well, it, we're not very good at them, right? We just learned to do them recently. Those, the computers can, can do much better. So in some ways in AI, it's the hard things that are easy and the easy things that are hard. Um, the Turing test, is it, is it meaningful? Does it mean anything if something ever passes a Turing test? And if so, when, when do you think that might happen? Like, when will it say, oh, the sun's clearly bigger than a nickel? Uh, well, you know, with all due respect to Alan Turing, who was a great genius and an AI pioneer, most people in AI, including me, believe that the Turing test is actually a bad idea. The reason the Turing test is a bad idea is that it confuses being intelligent with being human. This idea that you can prove that you're intelligence by fooling, intelligent by fooling a human into thinking you're human is very weird, if you think about it. It's like saying an airplane doesn't fly until it can fool birds into thinking it's a bird, right? That doesn't make any sense. So true intelligence is, can take many forms, not necessarily the human form. So in some ways, we don't need to pass the Turing test to have AI. And in other ways, actually, the Turing test is too easy to pass and by some standards has already been passed by systems that no one would call intelligent, right? Talking with someone for five minutes and fooling them into thinking you're a human is actually not that hard because humans are remarkably adept at projecting humanity into anything that acts humanly. In fact, even in the 60s, there was this famous thing called ELISA uh, that basically just, you know, picked up keywords with what you said and gave back these canned responses. And if you talk to ELISA for, you know, for five minutes, you'd actually think that, you know, it was a human. Although Weizenbaum's observation was even when people knew Eliza was just a program, they still formed emotional attachments to it. And that's what he found so disturbing. No, exactly. So human beings have this uncanny ability to treat things as human because that's the only reference point that we have, right? We, again, this, this whole idea of reasoning by analogy, if we have something that behaves even a little bit like a human, because there's nothing else in the universe to compare it to, we start treating it more like a human and projecting more human qualities into it. And, and, you know, by the way, this is something that once companies start making, you know, bots, I mean, this is already happening with chatbots like Siri and Cortana and whatnot, but it'll happen even more so with, uh, you know, with home robots. There's going to be a race to make the robots more and more human-like 
because you know if you form an attachment an emotional attachment to my product that's what i want right you know i'll sell more of it and for a higher price and so on and so forth so we are going to see uncannily human-like uh, robots and ais uh whether this is a good or bad thing is is, is another matter what what do you think creativity is and what an AGI, I guess, by definition, be creative, right? It could write a sonnet or a... Yeah, or so AGI would, by definition, be creative. One thing that you hear a lot these days, but that, unfortunately, is, is incorrect, is that, oh, you know, we can automate these menial routine jobs. We certainly can. But creativity is this deeply human thing that will never be automated. And uh, this is kind of like a superficially plausible notion, but in fact... There are already examples, for example, of computers that compose music. So, for example, there's this guy, David Cope, professor at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, he has the computer program that will create music in the style of the composer of your choice. And he does this test where he plays a piece by Mozart, a piece by a human composer imitating Mozart, and a piece by his computer, and I was uh, by his system. And, you know, and, and he did this at a conference that I was in and asked people to vote for, you know, which one was the real uh, Amadeus. And, you know, the real one won, but the second place was actually the computer. So the computer can already write Mozart better than, than a professional, highly, you know, educated human, um, um, you know, human composer can. Computers have made paintings, uh, you know, they're actually quite, quite beautiful and striking, many of them. Computers these days, they write new stories, right? There's this company called Narrative Fiction that will write new stories for you and the likes of, you know, uh, Forbes or Fortune, I forget which one it is, actually published some of the things that they write. So it's not a novel yet, but, but we will get there. And also in, in other areas, like for example, chess and Go are notable examples. Both Kasparov and, and Lisa Dahl, when they were beaten by the computer, had this remarkable reaction of saying like, wow, the computer was so creative. It came up with these moves that I would never have thought of that seemed dumb at first, but turned out to be absolutely brilliant. And, you know, and in, in, you know, computers have done things in mathematics and, uh, uh, you know, theorems, you know, proofs, et cetera, et cetera, all of which, if done by human, would be considered highly creative. So automating creativity is actually not that hard. It's funny, when Kasparov first said it seemed creative, what he was, what he was implying was that uh, IBM cheated, that they put, that people had intervened, and, so, and, and, and IBM hadn't. But that's a testament to just how. There were actually two phases, right? So he said that at first, but then actually, what? So, so he was suspicious because, again, how could something not human actually be doing that? But then later, you know, like you know, after the match and he had lost and so on, you know, like if you remember, there was this move, right? That that Deep Blue made that seemed this crazy move, but right. basically caused the force win, you know, whatever five moves later. And and Kasparov had this expression. He said like. I could smell a new kind of intelligence playing against me, which is very interesting for us AI types because we know exactly what was going on, right? It was these, you know, uh, search algorithms and a whole bunch of th technology that, that we understand fairly well. It's interesting that from the outside, this just seems like a new kind of intelligence, and maybe it is. He, he, he also said at least it didn't enjoy beating him, which <laughs> yes, I guess someday, though, it may, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, again, that, that could happen, again, depending on how we build them, right? The other very interesting thing that happened in that match, and again, I think it's, it's symptomatic, is that Kasparov is someone who always won by basically intimidating his opponents into submission. 
right? They just got scared of him. And then he beat them, right? The thing that happened with Deep Blue was that Deep Blue couldn't be intimidated by him. It was just a machine, right? As a result of which Kasparov himself suddenly, for the first time in his life probably, became insecure. And then what happened, you know, after he lost that game is that in the, in the following game, he actually made these, you know, mistakes that, right. that he would never make because he has suddenly himself become insecure. Hmm. Uh, 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 foreboding, isn't it? Um, we've talked about emergence a couple of times. Do you think there's any chance, you know, there's the Gaia hypothesis that maybe all of the life on our planet uh, is some, has an emergent property of uh, some kind of an intelligence that we can't perceive any more than our cells can kind of perceive us. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And do you have any thoughts on if eventually the internet could if yeah, it's just so, become yeah. emergent, an emergent right, consciousness? Think, right. So I think that, and, and like most scientists, right, I don't believe in the guy hypothesis in the sense that the earth as it is does not have enough self-regulating ability uh, you know, to achieve this homeostasis that living beings do. In fact, some things, you get these negative feedback cycles where things actually go badly wrong. So most scientists don't believe in the guy hypothesis for Earth today. Now, what I think, and a lot of other people think is the case, is that maybe the guy hypothesis will be true in the future because as the Internet expands and, you know, the Internet of Things with sensors all over the place, literally all over the planet, and a lot of actions continue being, being taken based on those sensors to among other things, preserve us and presumably other kinds of life on Earth. I think we fa if we fast forward 100 years, there's a very good chance that Earth will look like Gaia, but it will be a Gaia that is, that is you know, technological as opposed to just biological. And in fact, I don't think there's an opposition between technology and biology. I think technology will just be extension of biology by other means, right? It's biology that's, you know, that's made by us, right? We're creatures, the things that we make you know, are also biology in that sense. So if you look at it that way, maybe what has happened is that since the very beginning, Earth has been evolving towards Gaia. We just haven't gotten there yet, but technology is very much part of getting there. What do you think of the OpenAI initiative? I think, um, so the OpenAI initiative, its goal, right, is to do AI for the common good uh, because, you know, people like Elon, uh, Elon Musk and, and Sam Altman were afraid that you know, because the, the, the biggest, you know, quantity of AI research is being done inside companies like, you know, Google and Facebook and, you know, Microsoft and Amazon and whatnot, you will be owned by them. And AI is very powerful. So it's dangerous if AI is just owned by these companies. So their goal is to do AI research that is, you know, that's going to be open, right? You know, hence the name and available to everybody. I think this is a great agenda, right? So I very much agree with trying to do that. I think there's nothing wrong with having a lot of AI research in companies. I think it's important that there also be AI research that is you know, in the public domain. And universities are one aspect of doing that. Something like OpenAI is another example. Something like the Allen Institute for AI is another example of doing AI uh, for the public good in this way. So I, I think this is a good agenda. What they're going to do exactly and what their chances of succeeding are and how their style of AI will compare to the styles of AI that are being produced by these other labs, whether in uh, um, in industry or in academia uh, is something that remains to be seen, but, but I'm curious to see what they get up to. Um, I guess the worry from some people is that, uh, it, 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 make it an analogous to a nuclear weapon in that if you, if you 
say, we don't know how to build one, but we can get 99% of the way there. And we're going to share that with everybody on the planet. Uh, and then you hope, well, the last little bit that, you know, makes it an AGI uh, is, you know, is a bad actor of some kind. Uh, do you think there's any, uh, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand the analogy, but you have to remember that AI and nuclear weapons are very different for a couple of reasons. One is that the thing, well, one is that nuclear weapons are essentially destructive things, right? And then, you know, you can turn them into nuclear power, but they were invented to blow things up. Whereas AI, right, is a tool that we use to do all sorts of things like diagnose, you know, disease and, and you know, and, and place ads on web pages and, and, you know, things from big to small. Uh, but the thing that the knowledge to build a nuclear bomb is actually, unfortunately, not that hard to come by. Fortunately, uh, what is very hard to come by is the enriched uranium or plutonium to build the bomb. That's actually what keeps, you know, any terrorist group from building a bomb is not the lack of knowledge, it's the lack of the materials. Now, in AI, it's actually very different because there is no such, you know, you just need computing power and, you know, and you can just plug into the cloud and get that computing power. It's more that, you know, AI is just algorithms, right? It's already accessible. Lots of people can use it for whatever they want. In a way, the safety lies in actually having AI in the hands of everybody so that it's not in the hands of a few, right? If only one person or one company uh, had access to the master algorithm, they would be too powerful. If everybody has access to the master algorithm, then there will be competition, there will be collaboration, there will be like a whole ecosystem of things that happen, and we will be safer that way, just as we are with, you know, with the economy as it is. Uh, you, you know, having said that, uh, we will need something like an AI police, right? So William Gibson in Neuromancer had this thing called the Turing police, right? The Turing police is AIs whose job is to police the AIs to make sure that they don't go bad or that they get stopped when they go bad. And again, this is no different from what already happens, right? We, we have highways, you know, bank robbers can use the highways to get away. That's no reason to not have highways, but the, of course the police also need to have cars so they can catch the robbers. So I think it's going to be, uh, you know, a similar thing with AI. You know, it's, it's really interesting when I do these chats with people in AI, always science fiction writers come up, always, always. Like, they, always referenced them. They always uh, had their favorites and whatnot. Do you have any books, movies, TV shows, or anything like that, that you think you, you watch them and you go, yes, that, that could happen. I, I, I see that. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of the depiction of AI and robots in movies and TV shows is not very realistic uh, because they, the computers there are, and robots are really just humans in disguise. Right? This is how you make an interesting story is by making the, the robots, you know, act like humans. They have evil plans to take over the world or, or, or somebody falls in love with them and things like that. And that's how you make, you know, an interesting movie. But, but real AIs, as we were talking about, are, are, are very different from that. So a lot of the movies that, that, you know, people associate with AI, you know, like Terminator, for example, are really not stuff that will happen, uh, you know, with a proviso that, you know, science fiction is, is a great source of self-fulfilling prophecies, right? People read those things and then they try to make them happen. So, uh, so who knows? But having said that, you know, what is, what is an example of a movie depicting AI that I think could happen and is, you know, fairly interesting and realistic? Uh, well, one example is the movie Her, right? The movie Her is basically about a virtual assistant that is very human-like. And, um, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been a very strange movie. These days, you know, we already have things like Siri, and Cortana and Google now, they're of course still a far cry 
from her, but I think we're, we're going to get closer and closer to that. And final question, what are, what are you working on? And, and are you going to write another book? And, uh, and so what keeps you busy? So two things. I think we are pretty close to unifying, you know, those five master algorithms, and I'm still working on that. That's what I've been working on for the last 10 years, and I think we're almost there. I think once we're there, the next thing is that, uh, you know, as, as we've been talking about, that's not going to be enough. So we need something else. I think we need something beyond the existing five paradigms that we have, and I'm working on a new type of learning that I hope uh, will actually take us beyond what those five could do. You know, some people have jokingly called it the sixth paradigm, and, you know, maybe my next book will be called the sixth paradigm. That makes it sound like a Dan Brown novel, but, uh, but that's definitely something that I'm working on. <clears throat> when, when, you, when you say you think the master algorithm's almost ready, will there be a ta-da moment like, here it is, uh, or is it, is it gra a kind of a gradualism? It's, it's a gradual thing, right? Again, look at physics, right? They've unified three of the forces, right? Uh, you know, electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces. They still haven't unified, you know, gravity with them. Uh, there are, you know, proposals like string theory to do that, right? These are how moments often only happen in retrospect. And like people propose a theory and then maybe it gets tested, then maybe it gets revised. And then finally, when all the pieces are in place, people are like, oh, wow. Uh, and I think it's going to be like that with a master algorithm as well. We have candidates, we have ways of putting these pieces together. Uh, it still remains to be seen whether they can do all the things that we want and how well they will scale, right? Scaling is very important because if it's not scalable, then it's not really solving the problem. So we'll see. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was great. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.